From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 501, Data Analytics with guest Jen Stirrup, recorded Wednesday, September 28th, 2016. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brendan. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio in our ongoing special series brought to you by Atlassian. I have with me today Jen Stirrup, who's a Microsoft Data Platform MVP and past director at large, and is well-known in business intelligence and data visualization expert, an author, data strategist, and community advocate who has been peer-recognized as one of the top 100 most global influential tweeters on big data topics. And Jen spearheads the past business analytics portfolio. I have a sneaking suspicion of what we're going to talk about today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming out. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And we have this luxury of doing it in person because we're here at Ignite in Atlanta and uh, uh, met yesterday at, the, at your session. It was I guess it was supposed to be, there was a few questions in there. It was supposed to be sort of a roundtable format. There's so much to know in analytics. It's yes. moving so quickly. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I think organizations have tried their big data projects. Mm -hmm. They've probably failed a little bit as well, but then they're starting to see some success. And now that the rubbers hit the road about big data, they're starting to ask the question, okay, so we're storing our big data. What do we actually do with it? And this reminds me of the old data warehouse days, right? I'm like a Ralph Kimball data warehouse guy from when it was a quarter million, half a million dollar projects. And you spend all your time on the, uh, you know, the transform and load problem. Yes, absolutely. The way I look at it, the industry is split into three main points. The first point is the very technical perspective. And that was very popular for a very long period of time. As you see, the Kimball methodology was rife. Mm -hmm. People spent a long time building extremely technical data warehouses. And then the second phase was uh, the industry discovered that people are actually removing data from the data warehouse. That was the easiest way to get it clean. That's right. And putting <laughs> into Excel and basically not speaking to the IT department. Right. So at that point, the IT and the business became quite divorced from one another. So then the industry had to think, well, how do we make sure that these users have got clean data that's robust, that's integrated, and it's protected? So self-service business intelligence came along. What a great term, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, um, the thing with self-service business intelligence is that you have your data warehouse, IT look after it, and they give the data to the users. And that's all very well. The users have got something robust they can use. Then the third wave of business intelligence really came along, which was much more business-oriented, and users started to say, well, we're not just happy with dumps of data in Excel. We really want something that will give us some context. So at the moment, the industry is moving 
using a springboarding from that third phase of business intelligence into using business analytics. Now, the way that I distinguish between the two is that business intelligence helps you to run your business. It gives you the numbers to help you be successful. So actually knowing what your sales figures are, That's that kind right. of thing? Okay. Yeah, exactly. And the business analytics is more helping you to change your business. Mm. Your organization is subject to lots of external and internal pressures. And what that really means is that uh, your business is subject to lots of change, uh, but you need to work out how do I change in the right direction? How do I pivot and keep up with all the demands? Things can change so quickly in our environment. So we're now entering into that phase of business analytics. It's a really exciting time in the industry. There's all sorts of new technologies popping up. So we see R, we see Azure ML mm -hmm. appearing as well. We start to see people using Python. So I think people are using their existing skills in order to really springboard from there towards the new path that the industry is taking. Now, R, I mean, came out of the scientific community more than oh. anything, right? So it doesn't strike me as a... I've never found it a great business product per mm. se. That the it, some ways it seems like the tools are somewhat rudimentary. Yes, but it's a different way to think about the problem. Like it, it is remarkable what you can say in R in relatively few lines of code. I agree. R is a free open source product which mm -hmm. you can go and download. It was uh, generated by as a product of a university department mm -hmm. in New Zealand. And what they use it for mainly was statistics. So that's mainly what it's known for. Now, there's about 7,000 packages you can download from the R website, and they're all free. Um, so the interesting thing is you don't have to code everything yourself. Mm -hmm. You can reuse what other people have used in terms of those packages. It reminds me of the PowerShell community in a lot of ways, oh, okay. right? That, that folks who come up with great scripts to, to, you know, manage an exchange server are happily sharing them on these mm -hmm. sites. Uh, that, and this goes all the way back to the original scientists I find in the R mm -hmm. space, right? That they, they've been sharing good statistical analysis work and so forth that you can then pick up, cut and paste into your own space and, and, and get to work on. Yeah, that's right. I think particularly with the scientific community, the emphasis has been that you will, you need to make sure your results are reproducible. Mm -hmm. People can replicate them. Because right. if they can't do that, they can't trust them. Right. So it's very good, I think, that real testing strategy is very evident in the R. And they kind of do itself. their work very publicly too. It's like, here is the code that I wrote to do yes. this analysis that you need to run as well and, you know, sort of confirm that this makes sense. That's right. And there's a number of IDEs that you can use in order to see those scripts mm -hmm. and to create your own. So uh, one popular one is RStudio. There are a few others as well. And one that we talked about yesterday was called Rattle. So RStudio is a downloadable or free open source solution, which you can get from the RStudio site. It comes in two versions. One is a free version mm -hmm. and the other one is a paid server version. So I tend to use the free version and um, just because it's there and it's a nice it's a nice little product. Now, the thing with that is because it's very much downloaded and installed on your desktop, it can be quite difficult um, to share those other than try and save them on a network drive or send them rounds by email. Right. And those two are not always great solutions, particularly with email, because you never really know what the real version is. So I think there's a move you to make our scripts much more industry strength in terms of how well we look after them. Um, source control. 
Yes. Right. I mean, the same way that we're getting this place uh, with PowerShell. Again, I'm going to keep making this comparison of source control, testing, you know, and a, and a clear archive. You know how old things are and what the current version is. It's interesting that, that, that we're still struggling over that. Yes. I find customers have either zero source control or they've got three or four different source controls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that having three or four source controls is any better than having zero. Yeah, in some ways worse. You yes. still get back to that same question mark of, so what's the current version? Yes, exactly right. And I find sometimes it's a, an issue where developers are perhaps empiring their code mm-hmm. and you think, well, actually the idea is about reuse. Right. And recycle your code as far as possible and make sure other people can test it. So what I've done in the past is a very aggressive programming p- format. We have, where I have two developers working together mm-hmm. and they're each validating each other's code. So one has only got their hand in the keyboard and the other one is watching. No, that, that's a sort of cl- classic pair programming model. That's right. And I tend to do that. I find it works. But, and well, the other thing I found that's really powerful pair programming, I, I think this would work really well when you do doing statistical analysis is mm. the person on the keyboard gets stuck in a rut, you know, they mm. can't code their way out of this particular problem. They start to thrash yes. and it's the head up person. It's going, you know, we're thrashing here. Maybe we need to come at this from a different direction. I can just help you stay out of those traps. I agree. And I think it really works to trap those particular issues early. Mm-hmm. And I find also it breaks down the silos and developer teams, which I see sometimes. Very often, I'm the technical go-to, so I'm organizing other developers. Mm -hmm. And so what I tend to see there is it breaks down the empires because you've got two two programmers working together. And with R, it's easy to fix errors. You can see the script and you can go in. Sometimes, like you say, people get caught in a rut. And with statistics, it can be difficult to work out which model you're using. Mm -hmm. It can also be difficult to work out are we missing data? Um, Is there something wrong with it? Um, Have we got all of our data? And sometimes having that second eye on the data really helps. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. if developers are in a small team, then it means that they can usually communicate very well. It yeah. doesn't happen quite so much in a large team. The quieter people get left behind. Yes. You don't want that either. Mm-hmm. So I found uh, Microsoft have been in busily introducing a Visual Studio with R in it. I actually really like that concept. Developers are comfortable using Visual Studio mm-hmm. and they're not always fans of R or they don't always know how to use R. Right. So I think that makes R accessible to people who do C++ code, for example. Mm-hmm. It gives them another tool for their toolbox and they can become that guru in their environments. It means they know their traditional programming languages, but they also empire of R as well. Right. It sort of breaks that up. Developers are fine with Visual Studio, but nobody else seems to be. Mm. Your average data administrator, you know, or, you know, somebody more on the operations side doesn't particularly want to go into Studio. It is, it's overwhelming. Yes. It's also an expensive tool. Like, in, unless you're, you know, I don't want to spend that much money just for an IDE. That's right. I think the opportunities will be more open in the future. Mm-hmm. I think it's still in its infancy. You start to see the ability to integrate R with other program languages much more easily yes. than at the moment. So I'm hoping eventually there will be a return on that investment. But what I think at the moment's happening is people are still staying very much with R Studio because it's free. Right. They have a stats background. Yeah. They're already backing up their stuff in email or they're using their file system. And now that's all very well. It's, it's very difficult when people get very comfortable with one way of working mm-hmm. to try and pull them away from that. 
especially when it's a new tool. Well, and in, in your demonstrations of our studio yesterday, you get the sense that the code, the visualization, like all of that stuff's together, yes. and there's really no separation of it. If I want you to be able to see that visualization, the, you have to run the same version of studio that I'm running, or, yes. our, of our studio, and I'm shipping you my code. And you're mm. generating the visualizations yourself. Yes, that's right. And it's a very siloed way of working. Mm-hmm. But what's nice about our studio is it does a lot of the things which I feel Visual Studio should do. Oh, really? So it's got lovely IntelliSense. You can see the visualization right at your right-hand side. You've got the history there. So you know what it's like when you're writing code. I, I, well, I don't know if you do this, but I tend to forget what I did five minutes ago because I was so busy. <laughs> and then I can go back in history and just rerun that quote. And because it it's the right-hand side, it's yeah. just in a lovely little panel. I can see the contents of my variables in another panel at the right-hand side. Well, plus, in my experience doing data analytics going all the way back to the Kimball days, it's a very intuitive thing you're doing. Mm. You know, when you're trying to figure out, uh, you know, try to see something unusual in the data – it's almost like you're not in your right mind, you know, yes. you, you're sort of in this intuitive state of exploring data and you often, you know, lose the thread. You go off on a, on a tangent and, and have to sort of pull yourself back and go, what was that I was trying to figure out exactly? Yes, that's absolutely right. It makes me smile sometimes because I forget what I did an hour ago. But I think <laughs> you just get so interested in something or you find something. So it's very much a discovery process. And I think... That's what's interesting about it, mm-hmm. but it makes it difficult to measure for projects because I'll be working with someone who's sat all day and they're actually not been working on what they've been asked to do. They've just found something right. and completely lost time. Time has disappeared. Um, so sometimes it can be hard to keep people on track, but it's a very creative process, actually. I totally agree. Uh, Jen, give me one moment to pay the bills here because this episode of Runners Radio is brought to you by Atlassian, makers of the Jira Service Desk. Jira Service Desk is a new service management software that IT team will love to use. Built on the Jira platform, Jira Service Desk helps you deliver cheerful service, is simple to set up, and so affordable you won't even need your boss's approval. Try it free today and get a free t-shirt if you're one of the first 100 listeners to sign up at Atlassian.com slash runasradio. I must admit, I use the Jira solutions. I use it for running projects. Ah, nice. I really like it. I find developers like it as well. And when I'm running small teams, it's really hard to find a solution that developers like. And it, Well, and that's where they come from, right? Yes. They, 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 the original Jira product definitely had this strength in a group, you know, collaborative work with developers. Yes. And uh, the, the service test product is a great extension onto that. Mm. You know, the fact that you this clean path from the service ticket, the I need help with X on the app to work items mm. for your application. It's a, it's a great thing. They've uh, been a great sponsor for us and this, this special Monday series of uh, Run As Radio. After 10 years of Wednesdays wow. only, we're doing Mondays too for oh. a couple of months. So it's, it's really been fun. You touched on something that I, I think is sorely understated, mm. which was, are we, you know, using the whole data set? I have found, even in the old days of of OLAP and so forth, that we often have preconceived notions of what we think our data should be. And as we're doing these queries and we see what we think are outliers, we Mm. literally shave them off. We modify the data set, call it, you know, cleaning up the data Mm. and perhaps suppress something that's important while at the same time does not fit with our worldview of what our data should be saying. 
That's absolutely true. Uh, people generally suffer from a confirmation bias, mm -hmm. so they will seek to confirm what they believe rather than attempt to disprove it and evaluate it. Right. And it's something we do every single day, actually. Well, the Internet's really good at letting us do that, too. That's right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. Even the things that pop up in our sidebar sometimes yep. are just confirming what we've searched for. I do particularly work with healthcare. I'm doing some healthcare projects mm -hmm. at the moment. And that's something we look at very carefully. So particularly with mental health, for example, if someone presents with a new symptom you've never seen before, mm -hmm. it can mean a number of things. It can be appear as an outlier mm -hmm. and that could be the start of a new disease appearing. Sure. Because maybe that particular disease they've got is actually permeat uh, permutating in some way. That's it's becoming something else. It's on a march. The alternative is that actually the person was misdiagnosed in the first place. Right. And that's not always good. No, and, and makes things even more complicated. That's right. Particularly if they're on medicine, which is, um, you know, it's really having a profound impact. Mental health space is notorious for the, there are very powerful medicines that, you know, talk about confirmation bias. Yes. Yeah. That's right. And I think particularly it's important to make sure that the individual patient gets treated as well mm -hmm. as, as we can. So we try to make sure that is that a new symptom or is it a new disease or is have they been misdiagnosed or is this as an existing symptom which has only popped up now, or it could be a new symptom, which is a facet of the disease that we've never seen before. So this becomes a lot of very interesting exploratory work in data, because mm -hmm. we have to then go and work out, well, has this appeared somewhere else and was it shaved off? How does it work? But I do have to say that the people doing the research and the doctors and the nurses do absolutely fantastic work in helping these people. And I think what I've admired most about it is the care that they take over these very sick individuals. Mm -hmm. I think particularly in mental health, people are not comfortable talking about no, it no, usually. It's, it's a very stigma thing. And, That's right, and, uh, absolutely. Uh, we need to treat it more like the illness that it is. Yes. But on the data side, I mean, do we just have to fight against this idea that we would trim any data at all? I mean, how do you really judge this is a bad record that is causing problems? Versus this is an outlier of significant data that while doesn't fit with our model, we can't ignore. Yeah, I tend to look at it in terms of different data sets. Mm -hmm. So for, I'll try and clean the data as much as possible and then I'll look at that data and evaluate that. But then I'll go back and include a previous edition of the data set, if that makes sense. And then I'll run the same on that and see where that gets me. Because um, sometimes that is a true outlier. But the truth is sometimes it's gut instinct as well. Right. Although we're moving towards a data-driven environment very much, sometimes the doctor will come along and look at it and say, well, actually, that was genuinely just a one-off. And ultimately, they're responsible for that individual care. Right. So then as we, we but we can keep a note of it for future research. Mm -hmm. It's one of these things um, you can look at and later in research iterations because you can look at it and think, well actually um, we we think there might be something there mm -hmm. and we keep it in the back burner, so to speak. I'm very aware of being from Vancouver, which was where the patient zero AIDS patient died, mm -hmm. that there was the, you know, they, in hindsight years later, 
they were able to go back through and go, oh, there was patient zero. Like, yeah. talk about an, an extraordinary outlier, an incredibly important case, which, again, is the exception. I mean, it's so rare that something like that would happen. But it, without good record keeping, they never would have figured that out. And they did not know at the time. He came in with flu-like systems and he passed away. And, you know, a decade later, they go back and I, I think it was that guy. Yes. It's fascinating, really. Um, I do say that we do use SQL Server mm -hmm. for a lot of the NHS. Right. The reason for that is it's a very well-known skill set. Yes. And, and great at retaining that data for, for forever, really. That's right, because we have to. In the UK, we have laws around retaining patient data mm -hmm. as we kept for a certain length of time. And people tend to keep it anyway because you need to be able to and go back and analyze it. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, there are very strict laws over what can be analyzed and what can't. Right, so you need data patient. privacy. That's right. So we need a patient's um, a permission in order to do that. So mm -hmm. that's something that's obtained as part of the process. Right. So, and one project I worked on was the anonymization of this, of some data as well. Right. And, because the data has been analysed by other universities, and we're very careful to make sure that happens. Although making that anonymous, especially when you're talking about unusual illnesses and so forth, like, okay, yeah, you stripped out the personal identifiable information, mm -hmm. but you are talking about a certain age of person and, you know, of a certain gender from a certain locale mm -hmm. with a fairly exotic illness. You pretty much narrowed it down to like one or two people anyway, with all the names and everything out. And I don't want to get too specific because right. uh, it was a, a, a private project, as it were. Mm -hmm. But I think um, what we do is we don't retain a lot of that information because we don't, because um, in case it is personal identifiable, sure. the NHS has got very strict rules over um, situations that might identify an individual where say there's five people living in a particular locality with a right. particular illness, um, you can discount that data because people are so worried about identifying that patient sure. that actually the record set just isn't included. Which is unfortunate because it might be the geography matters there. That's right. It know? could be. But if there's only, if there's less than five people, right. then it's just not included. You can't include it. You can't include it. Yeah, that's an interesting problem. Like Again, we're getting into this. We're shaping the data, arguably for a more coherent, reasonable reason, mm. uh, and perhaps distorting the truth in the process. Yeah, that's right. But you told if there's only five people in a particular locality, right. that actually you are moving towards that being an outlier. Yeah, it's not statistically relevant. To, so it's very interesting. There's so much data there. And the objective is really to help people. Mm -hmm. And I think as healthcare analytics moves forward in the future, that we will start to see a much more emphasis on people being much more proactive in their own healthcare. Right. So we see Fitbits, for example, yes. Microsoft bands. People are actively generating their own healthcare data. Because we don't have enough data yet. We don't have <laughs> enough data. <laughs> uh, you had this great slide and sort of a, and a conversation about this evolution of data analytics mm. in one respect or another. And I really appreciated your thinking around folks that have invested in the data warehouse. It's not like they've wasted their money. That's right. Yeah, they should not throw away the data warehouses. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I do get asked the question, should I throw away my SQL server? Ah. Uh, no, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> all that work, all that craftsmanship's gone into that. But also the data of record, like yes. it generally has the, the storage of the true transaction, whatever that may be, like that's kind of important. Yes, exactly. So you've still got those insights and that's part of your business intelligence estate mm -hmm. and you want to keep that and it helps you to run your business. I think also you can use that data to springboard 
into more analytics way of thinking. You already have a wonderful data set in your data warehouse, mm-hmm. and you can use that along with other data sources in order to ask yourself really interesting questions. And really ask the data interesting questions, which lead to more questions. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that's I- always been my experience with this kind of tool. Yes. It only leads to more questions. That's right. Business intelligence is all about time to answer. Mm-hmm. How quick can you give me my report? Mm-hmm. But business analytics is more about time to next question. So <laughs> you need to give the person enough information that they will be able to formulate the next question. So you need to visualize the data so they can see it. Think of a next question and then that sends you down another path. Those graphical visualizations in my mind are about Helping you see the outliers or sort of the, you know, it's like, it's, I feel like 99% of the data is stuff we expected. Yes. And in the end, you're making scatter diagrams and line graphs and so forth to show the edges that are where we might actually take some action or see something unusual. Yeah. And I really think that if you're showing data, which is, the customer says is boring, mm-hmm. you're showing the wrong data. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just about choosing a scatter chart or a pie chart or a line chart. It's about communicating the message of the data to the users. You want people to look at a visualization and go, aha. Mm-hmm. And I personally love the aha moment yeah, that you give that's someone. Good fun. It is when they see something in their data they didn't know before. And that's when it becomes interesting. And it's not just about nailing reports together. It's about trying to make a narrative around the data. Mm-hmm. A good example of that is comic books. Um, I don't know if you read any comics. Um, I have in the past. You have in the past, that's <laughs> right. I happen to visit uh, comic book stores myself. Nice. And so the narrative you get in comic books, say you go into something like Forbidden Planet or something like that, and mm-hmm. um, pick up a comic book and have a look at how well they tell a story in a very short space Yes. And how they get that message across and they keep your interest mm-hmm. is very pacey. There's a whole science as well as an art to building these comic books. And when you build data visualizations, you're thinking the same way. How can I get the information across in a very small space and a short space of time as well? Because users are busy. They, they tend to take between five and seven seconds mm-hmm. to decide whether or not they're going to look at your visualization anymore. <laughs> That's the only amount of time you get. That's all you get. That's all you get because they're busy and they will move on. Right. doesn't actually help them. Uh, in that slide, you showed the sort of hierarchy or evolution of these uh, different techniques, sort of ending with the predictive analytics? Uh, prescriptive analytics. Or prescriptive, yes. right. That was the Gartner term. Yes, I'll take you through that. Gartner, mm-hmm. have got a, Gartner have got a wonderful slide, and it just nails everything and just puts it on a one-pager. Mm-hmm. And what it starts off with is descriptive analytics, and that asks the what question. Mm-hmm. What happened? And that's more your business intelligence perspective. It's always about your rearview mirror. So it's about... What's happened in the business and Mm -hmm. in this environment until this point in time? And then we've got diagnostic analytics, which is still mainly in the remit of business intelligence. And it's really asking the question, why did this happen? It's more why. So why did our profits go down? Why did we stop selling this product, this particular product? So then we start to move in predictive analytics, and that's more about what will happen, and that's about looking through your front window of your car Mm -hmm. to see what's coming at you next, rather than looking behind you to see what did happen. And it's more risky, it's more difficult to provide return on investment, Mm -hmm. because it's harder to measure. 
makes sense. It makes, yeah, so yeah. it can be difficult to go down that path. But the thing is, in a very busy environment, you need to start looking at what will happen next? Where can I put my business towards? Let's take an example of Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Blockbuster, uh, we're approached by Netflix and, and to see if basically Blockbuster were interested in buying Netflix. I don't know about you, but I see Blockbuster stores all over the place with clothes, with their signs over them. Yeah, they don't, e- don't even see the signs anymore. They're That's just simply right. gone from my They're part gone. of the world. Yeah, so now Netflix are obviously, um, multi-million, multi-billion right. industry. but there once was a time. Yes, they were that small startup. Mm-hmm. And Blockbuster, very much at the time, were thinking, no one will ever want to download videos. Who'd want to do that? Yeah, that's crazy Completely talk. missed it, yeah. exactly. And I think if they'd done some forward planning, they might be in a very different position mm-hmm. than they are now. And then finally, we get prescriptive analytics. And that's more the holy grail of analytics. What should I do next? Mm-hmm. We tend to see that in the realms of alerting, where, where the data helps you to decide what to do. And that's you getting into more artificial intelligence, more into Cortana analytics, which right. Microsoft are very much emphasizing at the moment. And I think when I speak to people, particularly at Ignite, Mm -hmm. they're still very much in the first phase. What happened to my business? How can I get my business intelligence estate working and working well? And you kind of need that first. That's right. You need that first. So they are thinking the right way about getting that wonderful foundation ready for Mm -hmm. analytics. But then that's where the fun comes in. Um, I don't know if you remember the Enron scandal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this. He writes for the New York Times. He's written a few books. One is called Outliers, mm-hmm. which I recommend you read. Very famous. Very famous book. Very interesting book. Mm-hmm. And he talks about Enron in terms of their data. So they have data. They were drowning in data. It mm-hmm. wasn't that they didn't have enough. They had too much. Right. They weren't asking the right questions. It's easy to get into the trap of asking um, very specific business puzzle tech questions, very well-defined questions with very well-defined answers. Mm-hmm. And that's what business intelligence is about. But then you get into business analytics where you don't always know the question and you don't always know the answer. And you tend to see that in business intelligence, a customer will come and ask you, they'll say, right, I want five years worth of data and I want 180 columns Mm -hmm. and I want it in Excel. And then you say, well, what do you really want? And they'll say, I've told you what I want. And the reality is they don't know what they want. So customers do a funny kind of logic. They only do ands. They never do ors. Right. They most certainly never do nots. Yes. They only ask for and, <laughs> and, and. And this, and this, more and more and more and more. <laughs> if I bury myself in enough stuff, maybe something good will happen. Exactly. That's right. And that's what they tend to do, which is why Excel is really the world's most popular business intelligence sure. tool. But you also getting back to... they didn't actually want any of those things. I need to be able to tell my boss, are we doing well or doing poorly? I need to tell the board we're growing or we're shrinking. Our new market strategy is working or it's not. Like those seem like real business questions that then have to be decomposed into this activity of what data you gather and how you analyze it. That's right. And we tend to find in psychological literature, there's a very interesting approach people take when they're consuming that sort of information. So people tend to want the summary first. Mm -hmm. And often when that happens, they get the detail. It's not what they asked for. So they will ask for another report. And they can't quite articulate what they need. So they just get more detail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, That's right. And then we call it the golden mantra of information visualization. There's some very specific rules you can follow. So people want this summary. And then they want to filter and zoom on their data. 
Right. And they want to analyze it. And then they want down to the detail. And the reason they want the detail is to check the veracity of the data. Right. So the the high level is more for your CEOs to mm-hmm. run the business. But sometimes you need to say, well, why is that an amber? Like, yeah. why is it not Especially a green? if it breaks an assumption. That's right. You thought our profits were going up. I'm, you know, the summary says the profit is going down. Now we need to talk about why and what evidence we have. That's right. And then that can mean that you've got an amber light instead of a green one. Mm-hmm. So you start to filter and zoom and say, well, actually, everything is green apart from this one thing, which is red. Right. So why is that happening? And then zoom and filter, zoom and filter. So I think if people follow that structure when they are presenting their analytics to people, especially to CEOs, uh, you'll find that you'll get better results in producing more Reports which are very much pointed at the business question. The funny thing is, is that's exactly the real sales model too, that most people make a sales decision in a fraction of a second yes. and the rest of the sales process is about justifying that decision. Yes, that's right. So it's still very much the executive summary, a description of what happened and in details to justify. Yeah, that's right. And they can also change the course of a business in seconds. Mm-hmm. I remember presenting one organization with a series of KPIs and mm-hmm. I went through this three-month process of dashboarding with them. And everyone had seen it apart from the CEO who just remained completely isolated, wasn't interested, was too busy, mm-hmm. all this stuff. And then I showed him at the end of the three months and he said, I don't like those dashboards. And I said, I'm sorry, I think what you mean is you don't like what the dashboards actually say. <laughs> Which is fair. Yes. Uh, great story, Jen. Uh, suddenly a half an hour has disappeared. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's a good thing, <laughs> really. It's a great conversation and uh, a nice uh, feel for where we are in the analytics landscape these days. Thank Thanks you. so much for talking to me. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for the privilege of being part of the show. I've listened to some of your other sessions as well. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so I really enjoy your show. So thank Thank you for what you do. You bet. My pleasure. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio.